Welcome to Tome Raiders, the podcast where we take folklore, legends and mythology and take it to the farmer's market and yeah. accidentally buy it £25 of artisanal mustard. Was that an accident? I'm going to... <laughs> I'm not answering that question. <laughs> uh, I'm Laura. I'm Ross. And we are... Well, are we? We're a pair of lovable nerds and we like to go to second-hand bookshops on the weekend and buy a random antiquarian tome. Yes. Well, in this case, the t- well, I don't want to get into it too early, but um, <laughs> the, I came across these stories, or the story that I'm going to tell this week, um, because of my Audible subscription. Oh, God. <laughs> this is not sponsored by Audible. As much as I'd like it to be Audible, you can give us your money if you want. Yeah. But it's not. <laughs> I wouldn't advise it Audible, weird. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, if you if, if you have an Audible subscription, then you are <laughs> then you then you have access to the Audible Plus catalogue. <laughs> and recently, I was building a bookshelf, a rather cool uh, secret. Don't tell the podcast about the secret panic room behind the book. Absolutely, a normal bookshelf. <laughs> and I needed some 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 stuff to listen to, um, so I picked up. I, picked, I went through my Audible Plus subscription and found. Um, something that sounded interesting, and um, it was it was it was ghost stories by M R James. M R initials, yes. not Mister James. Not Mister James. <laughs> <laughs> ghost stories by Mister James. <laughs> no, M R no. James. Um, who apparently is yeah. different from E L James. Yes, different which is, James. Which is what I thought he told me he was listening to. Yeah. Imagine my surprise, listener. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> e L James wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, babe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, that would have been a surprise. So tell us a bit about M. R. James, please. Um, M. R. James Montague Road James. Is that his name? His full name? Montague Rhodes James. Okay. Yes. Um, Montague is not a common first name these days. Is I it? believe they called him Monty. Monty. I was listening to a podcast about him not too long ago. Oh really? What was that? Pre- did you do preparate? Did you? Pre- no, it was a coincidence. A I'm just coincidence. a. I'm just a very learned individual. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I believe I you. I can't tell if he's laughing like lol, really, <laughs> or <laughs> not at all. Um, <laughs> no, M R James is. Um, he was a. He was. He was. He was a writer in the kind of Victorian era, late Victorian. Um, but basically, he's most well known for his ghost stories, and um, he, you know, they're they're sort of like a great British staple, like mashed potato. And... <laughs> this is the second podcast in a row in which we're going to talk about mashed potato. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Everybody knows Badger loves mashed potato. <laughs> so yeah, um, M. R. James um, wrote a bunch of ghost stories, and they're all frankly quite nice and short and digestible. Um, however, I'm just going to prep you and prep your expectations. Okay. In that, I've been re- since I read this since I read Derek Jacobi read it to me. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> since Derek Jacobi read these ghost stories to me, on um, Audible, on Audible, not like sitting on the side of his bed. Oh gosh, oh, I wish Derek Jacobi, what a man. <laughs> um, since that, since then, I've been reading some more Victorian literature, including Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I'm currently reading The Woman in White. And one thing they all have in common, Laura, is that they do not spare the details. Okay, so, so it's quite kind of wordy and... It's sort of like, well, actually, to be honest, these stories are quite concise, except that they sort of, like, take a little meandering way to get to the point. 
it's I know that seems like an oxymoron, but hopefully by reading this story, it will totally explain you'll understand all. Okay, and okay. today's story um, is called Rats. Okay. But for those who have a um, sensitivity toward, towards rats, don't worry. Um, it's nothing to do with rats. It's just a weird title for the story. Okay. It's to do with much scarier things than rats. Oh, good. Is this going to actually give me the spooks? Um, <laughs> maybe. Oh, God. Okay. So. Shall I go and get the cat so I've got someone to cuddle? Now we're going to take a deep breath in. And out. And if you was to walk through bedrooms... <laughs> sitting here thinking this episode laura let's not get hysterical <laughs> and within a couple of words <laughs> an accent straight off the top <laughs> there will be there's one accent in this in this okay. in this in this episode okay and that, i'm going to it's, it's going to be this accent that's that's the accent it's going to be so you can pay, pay yourself okay pay yourself patience. <laughs> and if you was to walk through the bedrooms now you'd see the ragged moldy bedclothes are heaving and a heaving like seas. Ugh. And a heaving and a heaving with what, he says. Why? With the rats on <laughs> Wait, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just got that there was a sex joke there. Yeah, but, but just it, one it, line too one late. One line too late. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so heaving and heaving and heaving in the bedroom with rats. With rats under the bedclothes. <laughs> but was it with the rats? I asked because... In another case, it was not. <laughs> I told you, this story's oh got gosh. nothing to do with rats. <laughs> and rats won't be mentioned again for the rest of the episode. Okay, fine. <laughs> I cannot put a date to the story, but I was young when I heard it, and the teller was old. It is an ill-proportioned tale, but that is my fault, not his. It happened in Suffolk, near the coast, in a place where the road makes a sudden dip and then a sudden rise. As you go northward, at the top of that rise stands a house on the left of the road. Well, say, so we've been on holiday to Suffolk, haven't we? We have been to Suffolk. And the scariest thing in Suffolk was... Oh my God, there was a giant fucking hornet. <laughs> the countryside is terrifying. <laughs> I'm not here for it. Now, place yourself in that dark countryside with the unknown buzzing. No, 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 no. <laughs> I've never sworn so loudly and in in such quick succession as I did on that holiday. It was it was wonderful. Well, it wasn't wonderful because I had to deal with the well. The hornet flew off anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It is a tall red brick house, narrow for its height. Perhaps it was built around seventeen seventy. That's very specific. I know (laughs) the architectural style of seventeen (laughs) seventy. The top of the front has a low triangular pediment with a round window in the centre. Behind it are stables and offices, and such garden as it has is behind them. Scraggy Scotch firs are near it. An expanse of gorse-covered land stretches away from it. It commands a view of the distant sea from the upper windows of the front. A sign on a post stands before the door, or did so stand, although it was an inn of repute once, I believe it is no longer. So... We're talking about an inn or a, a okay yeah 
Oh, uh, right, okay, okay. That isn't an inn anymore. Okay, okay. So it's like when you see those old abandoned B&Bs when oh, yeah. you go to, like, South End on Sea. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is good, actually, you know, good to think about. You know, this, get your mind in that kind of, in yeah. the kind of coastal plains. Kind okay. Of to this inn came my acquaintance, Mr. Thompson, when he was a young man on a fine spring day, coming from the University of Cambridge. Oh, oh yes. Well, come from the University of Cambridge well, in these stories. M.R. James did actually go to Cambridge. Of course he did. Yeah. And actually, to be honest, most of his stories centre some kind of uh, Cambridge scholar Ugh. who's doing some investigation or on holiday or on his sabbatical or something like that. I so, see. <laughs> so get used to it, my friend. I've just noticed a terrifying illustration. Yeah, don't look at that. Oh, my God. That's, that's a spoiler. Oh, God. All right. I didn't see anything. Okay. I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything. And he was desirous of solitude, intolerable quarters, and time for reading. These he found, for the landlord and his wife had been in service and could make a visitor comfortable, and there was no one else staying at the inn. Okay, so this is be- so we've travelled back in time. Oh, we're ba- well back in time. Okay, we're, so we're, we're back before the abandoned B and B was an abandoned B and B. Yes, this is now. This is this is this is before it was abandoned. This was. This is yeah, just when it was a B and B. Absolutely. Okay, got it. Yeah, it wasn't like. You know, you go there and it says abandoned B&B on the sign and you go, oh, shit, I was so <laughs> Anyway. Um... <laughs> no vacancies. <laughs> he had a large room on the first floor commanding the road and the view. And if it faced east, why, that could not be helped. The house was, house was well built and warm. He spent very tranquil and uneventful days. Work all the morning and afternoon perambulation of the country round. A little conversation with country company, or the people of the inn in the evening, over the then fashionable drink of brandy and water. A little more reading and writing, and bed. Brandy and water? It just feels like you're just diluting your brandy, aren't you? Yeah. Guess that's kind of what brandy and ice is, though, isn't it? In a way. Hmm. Can I have brandy and water, please? We don't do cocktails. <laughs> And he would have been content that this should continue for the full month he had at disposal. So well was his work progressing, and so fine was the April of that year, which I have reason to believe was that which Orlando Whistlecraft chronicles in his weather record as the charming year. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Whereas 2020 was... What would you describe 2020 (laughs) as? (laughs) The shit year. Yeah. <laughs> nice and concise. Yes. Very well put. Though. One of you met me in twenty twenty. Oh, <laughs> Backtrack. Backtrack. <laughs> it, was, it was shit for the world. We had a great. We yeah. had a great year. We it was did. a great year. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. One of his walks took him along the northern road, which stands high and traverses a wide common called a heath. Oh, heath. Laura loves a heath. I love a heath. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, specifically because you were, uh, you, you used to live near a heath. I did. I used to live near Hampstead Heath. I definitely could not afford to live there. <laughs> and it was wonderful. And the woman in white is set in Hampstead Heath as well. Is it really? Well, it's set in Hampstead. Is it really? I didn't it, know that. In fact, it's, so it's set, because it was written in the 1800s, it's like, I took a I took a coach from London to Hampstead. <laughs> <laughs> Hampstead, for context to our non-Londoners, is very much in London. Is now. zone two. Zone two is like the closest <laughs> to yeah. London, apart from like central central London. Mm. I could nice. I could walk to 
the centre of the city from yeah. my flat in Hampstead. Easily. It wasn't even, like, a stretch. And there is a very spooky graveyard near where you lived. What, Highgate Cemetery? Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. It's very spooky. It's beautiful. Who is it who's buried there? Everyone. Everyone's buried there. Everyone's Highgate. buried there. Oh, okay. Um, trying to think of some. Douglas Adams is buried there. Okay. And there's yeah. people go to his grave and leave, like, pencils. Oh. It's really sweet. I like that. Um, George Michael is buried there. Really? Yeah, and that his grave was all like last time I went, you couldn't get anyone near George Michael's grave. What because of there was there was just too many people too coming many people. to pay homage, you know? Wow. Yeah. There's all kinds of people buried at Highgate. Today. Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. No, I'm not joking. Karl Marx is buried in Highgate Cemetery, and I have no idea why. <laughs> I don't know. Lots of people go on pilgrimage to his grave too, but for, for other reasons, different reasons, yeah. yeah. We've really... We've digressed. Let's go back, <laughs> get back let's to go back the story. To, let's go back to Suffolk. Okay. On the bright afternoon when he first chose this direction, his eye caught a white object some hundreds of yards to the left of the road, and he felt it necessary to make sure what this might be. It was not long before he was standing by it, and found himself looking at a square block of white stone fashioned somewhat like the base of a pillar, with a square hole in the upper surface. Just such another you may see this day on Thetford Heath. Well, John Constable is not at Highgate Cemetery, but in ha- in Hampstead. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's I mean, cool. That was probably who you were thinking of. Oh, I was probably thinking of that. Because I went, I, I went on a pilgrimage to John Constable's grave in Hampstead. Uh, we, didn't we also go to a, on a pilgrimage to John, John Constable's, the place where he pa- painted? Yeah, we went to... In Suffolk. In Suffolk. In Suffolk. We went to where he painted... Oh, my... It's all connected, Laura. <laughs> we went to it's where he connected. painted the <laughs> God, we're really going all over the place today. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> After taking stock of it, he contemplated for a few minutes the view which offered a church tower or two, some red roofs of cottages and windows winking in the sun, and the expansive sea, also with an occasional wink and gleam upon it, and so pursued his way. In the desultory evening talk in the bar, he asked why the white stone was there on the common. An old-fashioned thing, that is, said the landlord, Mr. Betts. We were none of us alive when that was put there. That's right, said another. It stands pretty high, said Mr. Thompson. I dare say a sea mark was on it some time back. Ah, yes, Mr. Betts agreed. I heard they could see it from the boats, whatever there was. It's fell to bits this long time. Good job too, said a third. Tweren't a lucky mark by what the old men used to say. Not lucky for the fishing, I mean to say. Why ever not, said Thompson. Well, I never see it myself, was the answer. But well, they had some funny ideas, what I mean. Peculiar, them old chaps. But I shouldn't wonder but what they made away with it themselves. What? Can it I w- ask, why do all of these people have the same voice? <laughs> <laughs> it took me a moment to realise you were doing more than one More person. than one person. <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't quite nuance my voice into different... <laughs> Fisherman one. Arrgh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fisherman too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and and actually followed up in the next line. It was impossible to get anything clearer than this. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> the company, never very voluble, fell silent, and when next someone spoke, it was of village affairs and crops. 
Mr. Betts was the speaker. Not every day did Thompson consult his health by taking a country walk. One very fine afternoon found him busily writing at three o'clock. Then he stretched himself and rose, and walked out of his room into the passage. Facing him was another room, then the stairhead, then two more rooms, one looking out to the back and the other to the south. At the south end of the passage was a window to which he went, considering to himself that it was rather a shame to waste such a fine afternoon. However, work was paramount just at the moment. He thought he would take just five minutes off and go back to it, and those five minutes he would employ, the Betzes could not possibly object, to looking at the other rooms in the passage which he had never seen. Why would they object to Why would some they rando object? just going through every single room in their house? I don't know. Well, clearly, he's making sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can't, um, do you know what? I'm literally sitting here thinking about that hornet. <laughs> <laughs> it properly shook me. <laughs> you were shook. I was really shook. I don't want to tease you about it because you were genuinely terrified of the hornet. I was really scared. It's okay, darling. There aren't any hornets in this story. Okay, good. It's something much worse. Oh, God. <laughs> Works every time. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody at all, it seemed, was indoors. Probably as it was market day, they were all gone to the town except perhaps a maid in the bar. Very still the house was, and the sun shone really hot. Early flies buzzed in the window panes. So he explored. The room facing his was undistinguished except for an old print of Barry St Edmunds. <laughs> By the way, um, that's where he grew up. Oh, really? A little Easter egg there. Okay, it's yeah. interesting. And did you know that uh, King Edmund of the... Well, I can't remember what century it was. Like the ninth century or Something whatever. Something like that, yeah. Is buried in St Edmunds. That's... In Barry St Edmunds. What a coincidence. I know! <laughs> I was watching a documentary about <laughs> King Edmund... And um, they were talking about they'd, they thought they'd found his bones. And the presenter said to the historian in this documentary, like, it's not in Bury St. Edmunds, is it? And the historian literally was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Astonishing, I love it. <laughs> the two next him on his side of the passage were gay and clean, with one window apiece, whereas his had two remained the southwest room opposite to the last which he had entered. This was locked, but Thompson was in a mood of quite indefensible curiosity. Nah, 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 nah. And feeling confident that there could be no damaging secrets in a place so easily got at... Oh, for fuck's sake. He proceeded to fetch the key of his own room, and when that did not answer, to collect the keys of the other three. What? One of them fitted and he opened the door. The room had two windows looking south and west, so it was as bright and the sun as hot upon it as it could be. Here there was no carpet but bare boards, no pictures, no washing stand, only a bed, and in the farther corner, an iron bed, with mattress and bolster, covered with a bluish check counterpane. As featureless a room as you can well imagine. And yet there was something that made Thompson close the door again very quickly, and yet quietly behind him, and lean against the window sill in the passage, 
actually quivering all over. Well, why the fuck did you go in there? If it was locked, it was for your own good. <laughs> Either it's none of your business, or there's a clearly a reason why you shouldn't be going in there. <laughs> oh, you really need to watch The Cabin in the Woods. Have you seen The Cabin in the Woods? Absolutely not. Oh, because... Okay. The, okay. Okay. The, the Cabin in the Woods is exactly the film that you need to watch if you hate those cliches. I'm telling you, it's a great film. Okay. Listen to recommendation. Go watch Cabin in the Woods. It's not really a horror film, but it's a horror. Anyway. <laughs> it was this that under the counterpane, someone they. What? And not only they, but stirred. <sighs> that it was someone and not something was certain because the shape of a head was unmistakable on oh, the bolster. Oh, no. And yet, it was all covered. And no one lies with covered head, but a dead person. Oh my god! And this was not dead, not truly dead, because it heaved and shivered. Oh, lords! If he had seen these things in dusk, or by the light of a flickering candle, Thompson could have comforted himself and talked to Fancy. On this bright day... Oh, I hate this. That was impossible. What was to be done? First. Mind your business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you can't do that now. Well, just relock the door, return the key to the front desk and get about your day minding your fucking business. Yeah. I feel like that should be my motto. <laughs> mind your fucking business. Get yourself to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> what, Jesus. What was to be done? First... Lock the door at all costs. Yes, 100%. Return the key to the front desk. Maybe check out of the B&B. Go about your way. Very gingerly, he approached it and bending down listened, holding his breath. Perhaps there might be a sound of heavy breathing and a prosaic explanation. Oh. There was absolute silence. Also, if there's a locked room in a B&B, it probably means there's someone else fucking staying in there. Um, yeah. You don't just go breaking into someone else's room. This, that is called breaking an entry. This, you know what? This is this is this is privilege, isn't it? This yeah. Guy, he's a Cambridge scholar, and he's like, I can walk into any fucking room I like. <laughs> <laughs> right. But as with a rather tremulous hand, he put the key into its hole and turned it. It rattled. <laughs> and on the instant. A stumbling, padded tread was heard no! across the door. <laughs> Thompson fled like a rabbit to his yeah! room and locked himself in. I don't blame him. The moral of the story, as with most of these stories, is mind your business. <laughs> we got a few more pages before you hit the moral of the story. Well, actually, no, no, no. Oh, I think you have actually have a hit on the moral of the story. Just uh, there's just a bit more to go. Futile enough, he knew it was. Would doors and locks be any obstacle to what he expected? But it was all he could think of at the moment, and in fact, nothing happened. Only there was a time of acute suspense, followed by a misery of doubt as to what to do. Okay, okay, so hang on. He'd broken into somebody's room and seen somebody asleep with the cover over their face. Mm -hmm. Has he considered that maybe they just have migraine? Well, you know, we would do that. Yeah, yeah. as migraine sufferers. Yes. Well, Thompson clearly, again, doesn't doesn't know what it's like to have a migraine. So 
Okay, that's what I'm going to go ahead I, I think, yeah. Let's clear. just assume you know? that it's just someone with a migraine and the feet that we can hear are them going to the door and being like, yo, who got the key to my room? That's yeah, so yeah, yeah. creepy. That's weird, man. Yeah. yeah. And like going like, okay, no one's else, no one's coming in again. You know, mm. I'm locking the door. Or, yeah. You know, like, anyway. Or maybe they were going to confront him and go like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And then he locks the door. And Anyway. That's the rather mundane explanation for the story. <laughs> and the M in MR James does not stand for mundane. Oh, no, it stands for Mont... Mont- what was it? Montague. Montague. The impulse, of course, was to slip away as soon as possible from a house which contained such an inmate. Yes! But only the day before he had said he should be staying for at least a week more. And how so- if he'd, he'd changed plans, could he, he avoid the suspicion of having pried into places where he certainly had no business? Whoa! Quite. Moreover... Just pretend that you've got a family emergency back in London. Yeah. <laughs> Although I guess they don't have phones in those days, so it's not like... Telegram? <laughs> telegram. So he, he could go into the town, telegram himself yeah. at the house. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moreover, either the Betzes knew all about the inmate and yet did not leave the house, or knew nothing which equally meant there was nothing to be afraid of, or knew just enough to make them shut up the room, but not enough to weigh on their spirits. In any of these cases, it seemed that not much was need to be feared. Mm. And certainly, so far, he had no sort of ugly experience. On the whole, the least line of resistance was to stay. Well, he stayed out his week. Nothing took him past that door, and often as he would pause in a quiet hour of day or night in the passage and listen and listen, no sound, whatever, issued from that direction. So just pack your bag yeah. and go back to Cambridge. You might have thought that Thompson would have spent, would have made some attempt at ferreting out stories connected with the inn. Hardly perhaps from Betts, but from the parson of the parish or old people in the village. But no, the reticence which commonly falls on people who have had strange experiences and believe in them was upon him. Nevertheless, as the end of his stay drew near, his yearning after some kind of explanation no. grew more and more acute. Oh, no. Laura, I'm sorry to say you're going to be really... <laughs> Your patience with this man is probably already expired, right? He's... So anyway. If he goes back in that fucking room, I'm going to throw the book out the window. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to grab the book from my hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Open the sash window <laughs> and fling it at the neighbour's cat. <laughs> oh, God. I'm just going to hide under my poncho. <laughs> She's literally hiding under her poncho. <laughs> On his solitary walks, he persisted in planning out some way, the least obtrusive, of getting another daylight glimpse into that room and eventually arrived at this scheme. He would leave by an afternoon train about four o'clock. Well, he... hang on. There's like a really involved plan. Like oh, yeah. Beyond just going and getting the key and opening the door. Yeah. Well, because no, everyone's, everyone's in now, you know. Everyone's in, so he can't just nick the key, can he? He would leave by an afternoon train about four o'clock. When his fly was waiting and his luggage on it... Dude. He would make one last expedition upstairs to look around his room and see if anything was left unpacked. And then, with that key, which he had contrived to oil, 
as if that made any difference, the, or the door should once more be opened for a moment and shut. So it worked out. The bill was paid, the consequent small talk gone through while the fly was loaded. Pleasant part of the country, been very comfortable, thanks to you and Mrs. Betts, hope to come back sometime. On one side. On the other, very glad you found satisfaction, sir, done our best. Always glad to have your good word. Very much favoured we'd been with the weather, to be sure. <laughs> then, I'll just take a look upstairs in case I've left a book or something out. No, no, don't trouble, I'll be back in a minute. And as noiselessly as possible... This fucking man, my God. He stole to the door and opened it. Idiot. The shattering of the illusion, propped, or you might say sitting on the edge of the bed, was nothing in the round world but a scarecrow. A scarecrow out of the garden, of course, thumped into the deserted room. Yes, but here... Wait. Amusement ceased. A fucking scarecrow? Have scarecrows bare bony feet? Do their heads loll on their shoulders? Have they iron collars and links of chain about their necks? Can they get up and move, if ever so stiffly across a floor, with wagging heads and arms close at their sides, and shiver? The slam of the door, the dash to the stairhead, the leap downstairs, were followed by a faint. Awakening, Thompson saw Bet standing over him with the brandy bottle and a very reproachful face. You shouldn't have done so, sir. Really, you shouldn't. It ain't a kind way to act by persons who's done the best they could for you. Thompson heard words of this kind, but what he said in reply he did not know. Mr. Betts, and perhaps even more Mrs. Betts, found it hard to accept his apologies and his assurances that he would say no word that could damage the good name of the house. However, they were accepted. Since the train could not now be caught, it was arranged that Thompson should be driven to the town to sleep there. Yeah. Before he went, the Betts' told him what little they knew. They say he was a landlord here a long time back, and was in with the highwaymen that had their beat around the heath. That's how he came by his end, hung in chains, they say, up where you see that stone what the gallows stood in. Yes, the fishermen made away with that, I believe, because they see it out at sea and it keep the fish off, according to their idea. Yes, we had the account from some people that had the house before we come. You keep that room shut up, they says. But don't move the bed out, and you'll find there won't be no trouble. And no more has there been. Not once he haven't come out into the house. But what he may do now, there ain't no saying. Oh, Jesus Christ. Anyway, you're the first I know that's seen him since we've been here. Sorry, what are you saying? So now Thompson's going to piss off back to Cambridge and leave these nice people to deal with... Yeah. (sighs) I never set eyes on him myself, nor don't one. Never since we made the servants' rooms in the stabling, we ain't had no difficulty that way. Only I do hope, sir, as you'll keep a close tongue, considering how an house do get talked about, with more to this effect. Also, I do apologise for the Scot- <laughs> Scottish, the Cornish accent for a, someone from Suffolk. I can't do a Suffolk accent, so I just I was on. thinking that yeah. earlier, but I didn't want to say. <laughs> like, your Suffolk accent sounds awfully like your West Country accent. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> My Uncle Tony lived in, in, uh, in, in Norwich, and he had a very sort of undefinable accent. That sort of, anyway, great man, Uncle Tony. The promise of silence was kept for many years. 
until he told M.R. James, <laughs> who published it in a massive book. Yes. The occasion of my hearing the story at last was this, that when Mr. Thompson came to stay with my father, it fell to me to show him to his room. And instead of letting me open the door for him, he stepped forward and threw it open himself. <laughs> and then for some moments stood in the doorway holding up his candle and looking narrowly into the interior. Then he seemed to recollect himself and said, I beg your pardon, very absurd, but I can't help doing that for a particular reason. <laughs> what that reason was, I heard some days afterwards. And you have heard now. Is that the end? That's the end. Well, now you get the flavour of an M.R. James ghost story. Well, I thought... Okay, so I've got lots of thoughts. And also, some of my thoughts... Um, there's actually an introduction written by M.R. James that has some really interesting bits in it. Do you mind if I read a bit of that to you Please as well? Please do. But first of all... Will I collect my thoughts beyond... Okay, you collect Why? your thoughts. Why? I... <laughs> you collect your thoughts. I'm going to read some bits of this. And so this is... An... I, thought, I felt... Okay, just a little preamble before I say... I, I find what the medium of ghost stories, I think, is, in, is really interesting because I feel like what makes them chilling is when they seem to have some sort of veracity. Like, or like, like they're, they're put forward as like, this happened... And you're sort of like the the reader or the teller of the story has this kind of sense of certainty that this is the thing that occurred. And and did you ever like, did you ever hear that show that they did in the, I think it was in the 90s or maybe it was the 80s, that was like a spin-off of Crime Watch where it was like, um, they did like a, a spoof on the BBC. Well, not a spoof, but sort of like a, an, like a, a show where it's like, they pretended to have to have some people exploring a haunted house. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And what they, was that called? I can't remember. It wasn't Ghostbusters, was it? No, <laughs> not <laughs> as in Ghostbusters. No, no, but... no. It, it was called Ghost Something, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, um, so like the idea, the reason why that show worked so well is because everyone thought it was real, mm. and um, and so people were calling in, going like, "This has freaked me out," you know, mm. and you know, complaining to BBC and all that. And so I find it really interesting that that medium of the ghost story should almost have this kind of upfront statement of this is a true story. Oh, or something I like. hate that. Though. But that doesn't that make it so much more kind of like it affects you in such a more deeper way? Yeah, definitely. And we look for those chills, don't we? We look for the thrills. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to read this a little bit here. Okay. The story that claims to be veridical in the language of society of psychical research is a very different affair. This is in re reference to... It's actually comparing it to Dracula, oddly enough, that it's kind of... Mm. He, he th thinks Dracula's a little bit lumpy and a little bit kind of over the top. <laughs> anyway. It will probably be quite brief and will conform to someone of several types. This is but reasonable for, if there be ghosts, as I am quite prepared to believe, the true ghost story need do no more than illustrate their normal habits, if normal is the right word, and maybe as mild as milk. The literary ghost, on the other hand, has to justify his existence by some startling demonstration, or short of that, must be furnished with a background that will throw him into full relief and make him the central feature. Since the things which the ghost can effectively do are very limited in number, ranging about death and madness and the discovery of secrets, the setting seems to me all important, since in it there is the greatest opportunity for variety. It is upon this and upon the first glimmer of the appearance of the supernatural that pains must be lavished. But we need not, we should not, use all the colours in the box. 
In the infancy of the art, we needed the haunted castle on a beetling rock to put us in the right frame. The tendency is not yet extinct, where I've but just read a story with a mysterious mansion on a desolate height in Cornwall, and a gentleman practising the worst sort of magic. How often, too, have ruinous old houses been described or shown to me as fit scenes for stories. Can't you imagine some old monk or fry wandering about this long gallery? No, I can't. <laughs> it cannot be said too often that the more remote in time the ghost is, the harder it is to make him effective, always supposing him to be the ghost of a dead person. Elementals and such like do not come under this rule. Roughly speaking, the ghost should be a contemporary of the seer. Such was the elder Hamlet, and such Jacob Marley. The latter I cite with confidence, and in despite of critics for whatever may be urged against some parts of A Christmas Carol, it is, I hold, undeniable that the introduction, the advent, of Jacob Marley is tremendously effective. Mm. I'm That's gonna... really interesting. Yeah, this this actually continues, but I'd, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Because the whole thing with the story that we just read, Rats, is that this happened in a reasonably respectable B&B yeah. in the middle of the day. That is what I think is the most chilling thing about it. It's so creepy. It's like, there's no way that you can just be like, oh, what's hidden in the shadows? You know, there's that kind of darkness, the veil of... Mm. But this is like... He can see it. In, in broad daylight. Broad daylight. No mistaking yeah. what he's looking at. Isn't... And also it was yeah. like tangible. Like it was... He could see the form of this ghost under the blanket. Yeah. Me, like giving it that physicality. Yeah. That I think quite often ghost stories... Like the ghost lacks that physicality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just fades through doors or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this is quite, quite obviously a, a physical human with weight you can hear its footsteps yeah you can see it breathing absolutely that is fucking creepy yeah i'm gonna leave it there on that little on that little note there's some if i if you ever want to read any this is i'm talking to the to the listener of course because i know that you won't want to read this no, no i will not <laughs> <laughs> um dear listener if you ever want to read uh mr james um then i highly advise you to because it's all in the public domain you can just go online and find it um but i i I love it. And Derek Jacobi's readings of it are so good. Um, <laughs> uh, just be prepared for stuffy Cambridge scholars. Yeah. And the mm. like. Yeah. And apparently just... I'm going to go ahead and say it. Men. Men. Men <laughs> who have no yeah. sense of like the, where they shouldn't go. They see a locked door and they don't think, oh, okay, that's probably locked for a reason. Well, a very brief aside on that. So M.R. James's stories do actually feature, they, as you've kind of quite rightly highlighted, mostly men. Mm. Um, and women are sort of relegated to a very small role. But mm. some people think that that's actually because M.R. James himself didn't much like the company of women, if you know what I mean. Oh. That he was, um, didn't, yeah, like he didn't, couldn't really kind of relate to women, didn't really want to know. Well, I know there are a lot of uh, straight men who can't relate to women, but like they're, there have been sort of like these theories, and I think to be honest, there's a dime a dozen of these theories about different kind of authors aren't there, mm, or yeah, different famous yeah, yeah. people. But I don't know; these ones kind of hold a bit of weight. Um, worth looking into if you like that kind of thing. Mm. But um, uh, yeah, I just think that that I think I think he's I think he's a special writer. He's very good. That was very compelling. Yeah, I was right there. I've there. stayed in enough slightly creepy B and Bs. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Gosh. Well, well. <laughs> I hope you're thoroughly chilled, listener. Chilled. Like a like a gin and tonic. Yeah. Or like um like a magnum. Like a magnum. <laughs> like a little chocolate ice cream. Or like a magnum of white wine. Or a magnum of white wine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I hope you all enjoyed that. Please do let us know. We live for your validation and feedback. Yes. Um, well, we live for your validation, not your feedback. Yeah, if you have negative feedback, please keep it to yourself. We don't want to hear that shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter and on Instagram at Tome Raiders Pod. Um, and yeah, tell your friends if you enjoyed it. Share us around. Um, we love doing this and we're going to do it whether anyone's listening to it or not but yeah. it would be nice if some... if we knew that some people were listening to it yeah exactly <laughs> uh, yeah have a lovely lovely weekend and a wonderful couple of weeks we yeah. will see you in a fortnight in two weeks time yeah um, don't know what we're going to be reading next time don't know mystery um, but yeah have a lovely couple of weeks love you lots wear your masks use your hand sanitizer. And take care, because though ghosts may not be real, COVID-19 is. (laughs) 